Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. This time, we continue delving into Siberia. This episode might be a bit short because I have um, I have a conference in that intelligent speech thing in about two hours from when I start recording this, but I really want to move this story onward as it's getting more interesting with each episode, and I think it's going to be a great way how to understand everything happening on in Siberia lately. And even today, we'll see some beginnings of some nice separatist movements. This episode is going to be about something of a colonization study that could be called Battle for a Continent, as we're getting into the juicy bits of massive warfare. The size of the so-called army that accompanied Yermak, and, well, if you don't know who Yermak is, please go back and listen to the part one and part two of these episodes. The size of the uh, so-called army that accompanied Yermak to Siberia has, well, created considerable debate, with figures ranging from a mere 540 men to a quite substantial and, well, important to its time, 5,000. A lot of scholars accept 540 as being the most accurate, although the Stroganov Chronicle Stroganov are the family which we spoke about in detail and at long in the previous episode, claims another 300 men were gathered from Stroganov lands for uh, the mission. However, since the cost of provisioning a force 5,000 strong would have been enormous, perhaps even beyond the ultra-wealthy 1%er Stroganov means, who truly were immensely powerful and rich at the time, 
A complement of 540 to 840 men seems, well, kinda close to the truth, and, well, you know, in all the historical sources, they like to add a few zeros at the end, just to make sure that, well, it looks nicer on paper. Furthermore, when compared to the size of the colonial ventures of other European states earlier in the century, it appears much less remarkable for its smallness. After all, Hernán Cortés, well, he conquered the Aztec Empire with only about 600 men at his command. He used allies and everything, and um, there was a short study for Patreons only that I published where the conquest was heavily described. However, it seems likely that here something similar was happening. Following the river routes that lay before them, the Cossacks advanced as many as 40 kilometers a day, which is nearly as good as the Roman legions, except Roman legions were, of course, building roads and doing all that stuff, so the terrain is rough and the going is very harsh. Along the way, they passed by numerous small settlements inhabited by the allies of the Kuchum tribe, who usually showered them and their boats with arrows, stones, and other nice little projectiles meant to stop their efforts. But, you know, if you're colonizing someone, then getting rocks thrown at you is by the by, quite normal, I suppose. This uh, reminds me of that uninhabited island in the Indian Ocean where that missionary arrived last year, maybe it was two years ago, and that uh, the tribe just killed him because they were afraid of their meeting with, with civilized, uh, so-called civilized people. So, less than two months after leaving Perm, Yermak and his men reached the vicinity of Isker, which is Sibir, the Kuchum Khan's capital. It was here, about 15 kilometers from the future site of Tobolsk, that the Cossacks fought their first real battle with Siberians under the command of Kuchum's nephew, Mahmed Kul, on October the 26th. Armed primarily with bows and arrows, the Siberians charged withered and collapsed with the first volley of musket fire. Mahmed Kul himself has been wounded, while the Russians suffered not a single casualty. And uh, if you read John Keegan's History of Warfare book, which contains a lot of mistakes, I must admit. However, it's a really good book in other aspects. Yeah, there he also shows that only when musket fire became widespread and wildly available to uh, the Russian people, only then, uh, basically, they could overcome the enormous and great weapons system that was the composite bow of the Tatarian people. Upon learning of his nephew's defeat, Kuchum and his followers abandoned Isker for the safety of surrounding forests, and Yermak and his men occupied the town the same evening, celebrating what has come to be viewed traditionally as the conquest of Siberia. Their initial objective achieved, and with the rivers beginning to freeze over in their rear, the Cossacks settled in and prepared for their first winter in Siberia. Somewhat surprisingly, perhaps, this so-called invasion did not change the nature of their tributary relationship between Sibir and Moscow. In fact, the arrangement had been relatively short-lived and had ceased to exist by the autumn of the 1581. When Kazan and Astrakhan were conquered by Moscow in 1552 and 1556 respectively, the rulers of Sibir were the brothers Yedjegir and Bibkulat. In response to the threat posed by Muscovite encroachment, they believed it was in the Khanats' best interests to enter into a tributary relationship with Moscow, which, as was mentioned earlier, Yediger did in 1555. 
His motivation, however, seems to have originated in the desire to find an ally against his neighbors, most notably Kuchum. And here we see again a small force doing what they can to kind of play on these tribal rivalries and play them against each other and win through some cunning diplomacy and diplomatic cunning. Gork and Mork analogies from Warhammer uh, abound. In 1563, Kuchum deposed and killed both Yediger and Bebkulat, but there was no immediate attempt on his part to alter the relationship of Sibir with Moscow, since time was required to strengthen his position as a Khan. As late as 1569, an agreement was reached between Moscow and Sibir, whereby Muscovy would act as the Khanat's protector on condition that the citizens of Sibir pay a thousand sables a year in tribute. The last time Kuchum paid tribute to Moscow, and in process renounced Sibir's fealty, was in 1571. The decision to proceed in this fashion appears to have been based on the fact that Russians had recently suffered their first major defeat in the Livonian War, which is, well, listen to the history of Crusades, they have uh, a lot of studies about that, and on the ability of the Crimean Tatars under Devlet Girey to sack and partially burn Moscow. Kuchum's emissaries had witnessed the aftermath of the sacking. The following year, the Chechermis, which is modern Mari people, living along the Volga above Kazan, revolted and pillaged Russian settlements on the Kama and Tushovaya rivers, possibly at Kuchum's urging. The more serious break came in 1573, when Ivan IV, who was the terrible guy, ambassador Tertiak Chebukov, who had arrived in 1572 to collect the tribute and had been welcomed by Kuchum, was killed on Kuchum's orders on the return trip to Moscow. With Siber's status as a Muscovite vassal effectively ended, Moscow reacted in 1574 by granting the Strogonovs the right to establish fortified positions on the eastern slopes of Urals. Such was the situation on the eve of Yermak's expedition. Now, significantly, although Yermak had been officially hired by the Strogonovs, he claimed Siberia in the name of Russia and Ivan the Terrible, Ivan Grozny, doubtless hoping to make amends for his crimes as a river pirate. When the rivers became passable again the following spring, Yermak sent word of his victory, as well one should, to the Strogonovs, and a deputation led by his second-in-command was dispatched to Moscow with gifts for the Tsar, taken from Kuchum's captured treasury because, hey, Yermak might be just a nice little river pirate. One might even call him Viking, as Viking was a profession literally coming from the word Vike, which is to Vike, which is a profession, not a nationality, and he's kind of paying his dues right now. That Yermak's band had succeeded in taking Isker was indeed a boon to the Strogonovs. According to Skirnikov, the Soviet scholar, they had been planning an invasion of Siberia for several years, the culmination of which was Yermak's foray. Their principal motivation was to bring a little military pressure to bear on Kuchum and, more specifically, his vassal, the Pelium prince, whose forces had aided local Volgul tribes in their attacks on Strogonov lands. The Strogonovs had little doubt on the fate of Yermak's small group against the 10,000 men Kuchum was believed able to field. Success, however, presented a brand new series of challenges and opportunities and I've been reading a lot about MLM and received some nice emails about this wonderful business opportunity. 
So if someone offers you to go door-to-door sailing, don't do it. Moreover, the richness of Yermak's gift to Ivan tempered, surprisingly enough, the Tsar's displeasure with the Stroganovs and convinced him that these early gains were well worth consolidating and building upon. This must have been at least as valuable to the Stroganovs as all the economic possibilities unfolding before them because these guys, yeah, they were truly and completely obsessed with making more money. Having received word that the Siberian kingdom had been taken, that, quote, Kuchum and his troops were beaten and his heir, Mahmed Kul, captured and many of the foreign people brought to Oth, or Shert, which comes from, again, the Sibirsky Lietopisi, this quote, Ivan decided to send them some help. In the spring of 1584, he sent from Moscow Prince Semyon Bolhovsky and the headmen Ivan Kiriev and Ivan Gluhov with some 300 soldiers to bolster Yermak's force. When these troops arrived, there was a general good cheer among the Cossacks that their accomplishments had been well received by the Tsar. But not everything is easy when we're talking about Tsar Ivan the Terrible, because things can happen in an instant, such as, you know, there is this nice little picture by, I guess, Ilya Repin, where Tsar kills his own son. Over the coming winter, despite being able to store up some of the fruits from hunting and fishing expeditions in some traded local peoples, the Russians exhausted their provisions, and many starved to death, including the Bolhovsky, which Tsar had sent over to help. Now, imagine how that would have gone over, right? Over the following several months, as a result of skirmishes with local populations, ambushes and intrigues orchestrated by Kuchum, his followers and allies in outright battles with them, Russian numbers dwindled, and their hold of Sibir became very, well, precarious. Then, on August 5th, 1585, Yermak himself was killed, when he and a small party of Cossacks were ambushed at a riverside encampment. Within a few days, the sole remaining Ataman, Maftei Meserchak, and the remaining Cossacks, perhaps 90 men, departed Sibir for Russia, leaving the town deserted. Unbeknownst to Meserchak, though, the Tsar, not knowing the Cossacks had abandoned Isker, but aware of attrition of their ranks, had already dispatched a second contingent of reinforcements from Moscow under the command of the Voyevoda, or warlord, Ivan Mansurov. Thus concluded the first chapter in the long process that drew Siberia and its peoples ever closer to Russia. What ostensibly had begun for the Russians as an effort to pacify and secure their eastern borders against military harassment developed into much more once the government realized the potential extent of the wealth, immense, immeasurable wealth Siberia might provide, and this will play a large role in the future stories because, well, money is what all of this is about. In a manner comparable to Novgorod's earlier expansionary experience, the initial thrust into Siberia was carried out on private initiative, which was somewhat more remarkable in the Muscovite context, given the greater degree of centralization embodied by Muscovy's political system. For their part, the Siberian native populations did not simply sit back and react and reflex to the Russian advance. Some of them, Yediger, comes well to mind because he's the most aggressive one, saw in Russians, if not a pawn, certainly an ally or a trump card to be used in their own political machinations. 
unfortunately, Muscovy proved to be a Trump beyond native control. The conclusion of the first stage in the acquisition of Siberia really began when Kuchum tried to assert Sibir's autonomy through Muscovy's aid. Although the government was at first reluctant to authorize any type of invasion, Tertiak, Chebukov's murder, uh, provided ample grounds for Moscow to adopt a more hostile position towards Sibir. And now we move on to Ivan Mansurov, which then begins the so-called second phase of the invasions. Hey guys, Annette here. I hope you are enjoying our new episode of The Eastern Border. As always, a big thank you to all of our Patreons. The show would not be possible without your help. If you are not a Patreon and would like to become one, head over to the Eastern Border page on patreon.com. Please remember to also follow us on our social media, like Twitter, where we are known as Eastern underscore Border, and on our Facebook page. We also have a Discord server, so if you're interested in that, find the link in the description of this podcast. That's it for now. See you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ivan Mansurov's arrival in Siberia shortly after Messerchuk's departure ensured that Russia's presence beyond the Urals would continue uninterrupted. Intending that Sibir not be lost, Moscow sent the voyevodas Vasily Shukin, Ivan Myanshi, and Daniel Chulkov to Siberia with a considerable force on the heels of Mansurov's expedition. Thus, well, organizing themselves and moving onwards, the Russians now had an opportunity to learn more about Western Siberia's inhabitants, to commingle and interact with them, and to deconstruct, and this is important, some long-standing myths about their appearances and behaviors. By the 1580s, Russian contact with Siberia's natives, although sporadic, had been a fact for several centuries. As a result of major differences in ways of life, however, no one really is surprised that early Russian impressions ran from the benignly uncomprehending to the utterly fantastic. One of the earliest sources for descriptions of Siberian people is the Skazania o Cholovichiskich Nizhnaimich Vostochnoy Strane, the so-called quote, story on unknown peoples in the eastern land, which relates to the Samoyeds of Siberia's north, specifically along the Ob River. Versions of these Skazania appear in 14th Russian manuscripts uh, the earliest of which have been dated to 1480s or 1490s. 
The basic elements of the 14th variations have been studied by a series of scholars over the past, I don't know, 200 or more years, and have been reduced to two reductions, the contents of which are pretty much same. They describe nine different subgroups of Samoyed, physical appearances, eating habits, modes of dress, transportation, trade goods, and so forth and so forth. They were depicted as drinkers of blood, both animals and humans, by the way. Ears of fish and raw meat, but usually reindeer or sable, although dog and beaver are also mentioned, and, well, imagine this, you are going to colonize some people who drink human blood, like angry vampires, and who eat raw meat. They typically traveled by a reindeer or dog sled. If they did not possess either of these animals, they went on foot. The only trade goods the Skazania attributes to these people were the skins and furs of small animals, usually sable, and more often than not, it says, quote, they had nothing of commercial value. The following, by the way, which I'm going to read to you, constitutes some of the more um, bizarre, and someone would say even racist, but certainly mysterious customs of uh, the Samoyeds, as was expected at the time, because, you know, the Russians view these groups as dangerous, inhuman. The dehumanization process is the thing that allows them to move onward with their oppression, and it's always easier to dehumanize someone whom you're trying to conquer, oppress, or otherwise subdue. Because some of this stuff is, uh, well, sensitive, and I don't even know. Yeah, this podcast is 18+, plus, but... Not like I mind if, if, if kids who are interested in history listen to this show, but still, if, you, if you're listening in a family audience, well, this is, this is when the Dan Carlinist stuff comes into the process where, um, where bad things might happen. So without further ado, let me say that I'm, I'm quoting here from other sources and that this is my opinion and that some grim stuff comes into mind, which could be compared and contrasted for example, what the Romans would say about the Carthaginians. So, let's go on with this. It was believed that some of these Samoyed groups were cannibals who ate their dead instead of burying them, and who offered their own children as food to guests. If any visitor to one of their camps should die while there, then he, too, would be eaten. Again, if you're a guest, then even these tribal societies have rules of hospitality, but if you die there, then you don't get a burial, you become someone's breakfast. Which is sad and quite likely untrue. Maybe only in times of famine, but, well then, in Eastern Europe, there are very few people who haven't had suffered through extreme famine, whose relatives have suffered through extreme famine. To other groups, were ascribed strange physical traits. Some were described as having their mouths on their foreheads and of being incapable of speech, while others had no heads at all with their mouths between their shoulders and their eyes on their chests. Still others were seen as only half-human, being covered in hair like a dog from the waist down. Certain groups were said to die for two months each winter, at the appointed time, an individual would stop where he was and sit down. Water would issue from his nose, as from a faucet, and freeze to the ground. There, he would, according to this, 
remain for a couple of months until, like the sun's return in summer, he revived this pattern of death, rebirth, to be repeated all over the years like an unending cycle. Concerning a group known as the Kaminskaya Samoyed, which lived in and near the Ural Mountains, it was related that from the mountains one could see their dead crying by the seashore, being driven by a giant with iron fingers. By no means a complete recounting of the Skazania. The previous descriptions form a quite a representative range of perceptions that many Russians would have had on their Siberian neighbors in the late 15th and early 16th centuries before they moved on to conquer this. As a result of the, these fantastic natures of some of the Skazania's content, people could be tempted to conclude that it was the product of the overactive imagination of some people who were just there to observe, but did not even bother to comprehend the customs that they witnessed. Pilguzhov, who believes it was informed by several sources rather than a single one, notes that, quote, the place of actual experience is at times concerned with an imaginary reality. The studies of the first explorers being turned into visionary descriptions of the world beyond, end quote. And indeed, uh, some contemporary Russians considered that these accounts of the eastern lands were, quote, compromised three-quarters of rumors, for the most part even of the tall tales of merchants, end quote. Nonetheless, there are enough factual elements contained in these skazania that Pliguzhov regards it as the first non-abstract descriptive overview of Siberia and some of its people who managed to eke out an existence in that harsh land. Now, fanciful perceptions aside, the Russians had had some considerable exposure to the ways of life of the indigenous populations of Siberia and of their cousins to the west, to the Ural Mountains. And uh, let's talk about the real lifestyles of these people, as they are all going to be absorbed. Sometimes, you know, you really have to talk about your sort of fellow, sort of not, but still tribal people, and, well, how did the tribes of what eventually became the many peoples of Russia live? Their social and political organizations and economies of some certain Western Siberian groups, specifically the very previously mentioned Samoyeds. And of course, we also need to talk about the Ostiaks, which are the modern Kanti, and Vogels, the modern Mansil. Now, I will use the term Knyaz, or Prince, here, which is encountered in many of the Russian sources, because, you know, they're semi tribal, semi kingdom societies, and this application can be very misleading. Because, you know, they're more like tribal communes, and despite wielding considerable power over their kinsmen, and possessing a certain degree of wealth and silver, and furs and other goods, the notions of noble lineages, and of an, an inherent social superiority resulting from birth into a certain family, were, well, largely alien to the aforementioned peoples, and, well... In Latvia, modern-day Latvian territory, we also had our tribes, and there was this term labiatis, or the good one, which would translate into the noble, literally, somewhat similar term. But it, it can be an earned term, right? It's not exactly the same as a noble. Moreover, the system of duties and obligations that existed between royalty and subjects in the early European model were explicitly or implicitly expressed 
well, that's, you know, it's it's kind of parcel of what terms like prince, king, or lord can jure up. There's like this direct vassalization and the kind of relationship of these responsibilities that you give your vassals land and then they protect you and everything. Yeah, and this kind of developed to a much, much lesser extent, if, if at all, even, by these tribes that I'm going to be talking about here. Thus, these native chieftains were referred to as princes by the Russians solely because of their position in the clans. <laughs> well, and, and only then where they most closely resembled that of a European prince. It's important to remember this distinction because it helps, you know, to avoid misperceiving the native social dynamic when it's described in kind of very inexact European language. A fourth major group inhabiting Western Siberia, obviously, was the Tatars, to which the people of the Khanate of Sibir belonged. More advanced both socially and politically, most likely as a result of their Islamic heritage, they exerted considerable influence on some of their Ostiak and Vogel neighbors. However, I would like to talk about the tribal societies themselves, because there are plenty of information about the Tartars everywhere, and their descendants of the Mongols and everything, so they won't be getting much attention here. You can listen to The Wrath of the Khans by Dan Carlo and other sources. Because... Uh, the Russian influence on and methods employed to bring the Siberians further into their orbit is kind of more important. But, for the most part, the evils mentioned above, these Siberian tribes, they led nomadic lives. Despite being wanderers by nature, it is quite possible to delimit their areas of habitation, and, well, let's try to describe them. In this episode, I will just be talking about the Samoyeds, because due to time constraints, but let's see, maybe we can do some more as well. So, the Samoyeds. Although uh, the mention of Samoyeds has already been made in the quoted Skazania, it's possible, perhaps even probable, that the information it provides was not based on direct Russian observation. Pligozhov notes that there is no evidence of Russian penetration to the lower Ob in the heart of Samoyed territory during the 15th century. Even if there had been, quote, sporadic expeditions they could only yield superficial information of the unknown land and reaching the Russian chronicles through two or three intermediaries, they must often must have been fantastic accounts. End quote. Indeed, Pligozhov postulates that the Skazania may have been written following the oral testimony of an Ostiak or a Vogel who had traveled and or lived in this Samoyed territory. Furthermore, some of the descriptions of Skazania particularly of a people who supposedly lived in the sea, correspond to Mansi legends of their northern neighbors. Thus, you know, you can probably presume that Russian writers borrowed from this and that and other legends and reproduced them as the truth by just blasting them out there because, hey, writing books is really cool if you can do it. The real Samoyed lived in the Arctic tundra. On the basis of linguistic and cultural distinctions, they can be split into three main groups. Between the Yenisei and Lena rivers of central Siberia and on the Taimir Peninsula lived the Tavgi, now known as the Ngansan, meaning, well, people. That again, in a lot of tribes, but the name of your tribe means people, and the names of other tribes usually, well, translate into friend or cousin or enemy or other people. Along the lower Yenisei and Tsar rivers dwelled the Samadu and other tribes from whose word for man... Yenete is derived the name of the modern-day Yenets people. 
Taken together, these two entities formed the Northern Samoyeds of Western Siberia. The third group was the Western Samoyeds, or Yuraks, who inhabited a large territory on both sides of the Urals and who roamed the forest edge to the Arctic Sea into the Kanyan, Gyadan, and Yamal peninsulas. Their descendants are the modern Nyenets. And uh, give me a nice little um, answer to what the hell Nyenets means in their own language. I'll wait. Yes, it also means man. Everything means man and everything means people because I guess that kind of, you know, describes how they viewed themselves, you know, everyone's kind of a man. The Samoyed were characterized by their Ostiak neighbors as savage, dzikie, and free, volnie, from the word volia, or well, like having free will. And they said of themselves that, quote, we are a wild nomadic people from whom it is impossible to live in one place, end quote. The whole of the tundra served as one great highway for their wanderings, which revolved around their hunting and fishing patterns. Samoyed economic life was centered on the reindeer. Among the nor northern Samoyed, Nyenzi and Enzi, a fairly sophisticated reindeer culture had evolved by the 17th century. The animals had been domesticated and most tribes had their own small herds, which were used chiefly as beasts of burden, holding the lightweight sledges that carried the Samoyed's equipment, and dwellings, because, you know, then you have to move, well, pretty hardcore, from place to place. In times of necessity, they could be slaughtered to supplement a meager hunt, and the practices of riding them or milking the does did not develop among the Samoyed, which is interestingly enough for people who subside on reindeer, as it did with the Tungus people farther to the east in central and eastern Siberia. Tame stock aside, the northern Samoyed were still semi-reliant upon wild reindeer to meet a tribe's needs and to help replenish any depletion in the numbers of the herd, which makes sense. You know, because Siberia, comrades, is a very harsh place, and happiness is mandatory. While each family possessed a few reindeer for harnessing the sledges, they owned no herds and were wholly dependent upon hunting wild reindeer, following them on their seasonal migrations. Like their northern kin, they used the skins of animals both for clothing and to make a conical tent-like structures in which they live. The tents were erected around poles, and the whole thing was easily portable, very suited to a nomadic lifestyle. All articles of the Samoyed dress, parkas, mittens, boots, so-called dresses, were fashioned in the reindeer hides. And here I have to bring in some part of the Finno-Ogre history of the Finnish and Estonian people, and some part of the history of the Baltic people as well, because, well, according to Uldis Germanis in his history book, or The Adventures of the Latvian People, during the cold era, the reindeer came here first. Now they've all died out here in the Baltic states, but the reindeer came first, and with them the Indo-Europeans that would later become the Baltic tribes. We also follow the reindeer, so this is kind of an interesting comparison. Although we arrived here much earlier, obviously, but this in uh, northern tribal parts, at least here in the e north northeastern parts of Europe, following the reindeer herds had been a very popular source of tribal migration and how, well, most tribes came to be where they actually were. While being the most important component on the Samoyed economy, the reindeer was not its sole object. They also hunted arctic foxes for the skins, of which might also be used in the manufacture of clothing. For those groups living near the forest's edge, beaver and sable were typical quarry. 
In addition, they hunted for such waterfowl as geese and duck. Some groups hunted seals and walruses in the long sea inlets at the mouths of the Pechera, Ob, and Yenisei rivers, and they all, all caught fish, which formed the usual part of the Samoyed diet. A fairly regular element of the Samoyed travels was an annual trip to the mouth of the Ob, quote, to fish at the edge of the sea and to live on the islands, end quote. Sadly, I couldn't find a mention of how long this whole summer enterprise to the sea lasts every time, but because of the shortness of the warm season and, well, what is high arctic, the trip was likely made in late spring or summer and was of extremely short duration. Now, what they got from these hunts, specifically furs, served as the main trade goods which the Samoyed offered. These, along with live reindeer, were exchanged with the Russians for flour and other foodstuffs. From the Ostiaks, they obtained softwood in return for fish products and, again, live reindeer. In the course of their movements, conflicts with other groups of Samoyeds over access to favorable hunting grounds and the best encampment sites were, like, super common as usual. You know, tribal societies, these tribal groups, clans, they clash with each other. The hostilities could be prolonged and violent, and they instilled a warlike nature into the Samoyed experience, which affected both intertribal relations and relations with neighboring Ostiaks, and, of course, Russians. These tendencies also express themselves in another facet of uh, Samoyed trade, which we have to talk about, obviously, because, again, tribal societies. Slaves. Prisoners taken in wars or raids on other tribes. Slaves. A lot more violent. And a lot more interesting. Dasvidenye, tavarish. To have purchased slaves from Samoyeds, and in 1644, a Russian serving man in the Berezov was reported to have exchanged some flour for a Samoyed girl. Despite the lack of an organized military, Samoyed tribesmen could be ferocious fighters. They, according to our documentation, preferred death to surrender and could be exceptionally cruel to their enemies. In 1645, the Strelecki Pietidisatnik, commander of 50 soldiers, Ivan Sorotkin, was sent to pacify some, quote, thieving Samoyed, end quote, on the Taz River. He later wrote that, quote, they killed nine men because they couldn't take the living ones with them. They argued with the dead and cut off their noses and fingers, end quote. There may have been some religious significance to such dismemberment, in that the souls of the dead enemy, lacking fingers, would not be able to hold weapons or grasp at the souls of the living. The principal weapons used for both hunting and warfare were spears, bows, and arrows, and a type of knife, called an atkas, with a flared blade at the end of a long shaft, somewhat like a short spear. Most of their weaponry was of their own making, but they also obtained some of the Russian origin, either in direct trade with Russians or through the Ostiak middlemen. Wood, stone, and bone were the materials with which most tools were made, as was the case for all of Siberia's indigenous populations. However, Siberian material culture differed in one important respect from that of other native peoples, and, well, hey, in contrast to Baltic people, let's talk about North American people who lived there. Prior to the arrival of the Europeans, North American Indians, well, first people, I, I'm just going to call them Indians because that's what my sources use, but hey, no, no disrespect here, my fellow tribesmen. They uh, had no contact with these so-called advanced, so-called civilized cultures. In contrast, Siberia, quote, as part of the old world cultural complex, was subject to many influences from the great civilizations of Eurasia, end quote. And this comes from Forzicht, the Siberian native experiences and studies, and etc., quoted before. 
including China and Persia. As a result, metalworking, which was virtually non-existent in contemporary North America, was widespread long before the 17th century in Siberia, where all the indigenous cultures either worked iron themselves or used items made from it when they could be acquired through trade. The results were more efficient and durable tools and weapons that required less of an investment in time and energy for the repair and replacement of worn items. For obvious reasons, a nomadic existence was not conductive in the growth of large communities, specifically in a harsh environment such as the tundra. The requirements of feeding and clothing any sizable number of people would soon have outstripped the abilities of both hunters and the natural resources to sustain them. Thus the social organization of the Samoyed, indeed almost all of Siberia's peoples except Tatars, was of a primitive nature. Generally, they were organized in patriarchal clans consisting of a very few families that traced descent from a common ancestor, often a mythical animal that served as the clan's totem. It would not, however, have been unusual to find groups no larger than a single family or an extended family, well, particularly in a poor hunting season or in times of famine, which were, as usual, super common because, hey, everyone gets to starve equally. Each clan represented an independent entity with its own ruler, or knyaz, as Russians would call them, as I mentioned previously, who was usually the oldest male member of the group. Like the vast majority of Siberian peoples, the Samoyed practiced exogamy, obviously looking outside the family of clan structure for mates. Now, the mating structure here and the marriage procedure is also interesting. See, once a man had found the woman he desired to marry, a bride price, or kalim, was agreed upon between the girl's father and a negotiator to the prospective groom had appointed from among his friends. If the negotiation was satisfactorily concluded, with, well, haggling and uh, lots and lots of, well, trading and possibly uh, beer or iran or other alcoholic beverages involved, if all this was negotiated, then the kalim would be paid, festivities would ensue, and then discussions concerning the amount of the bride's dowry, which typically would be approximately equal to the value of kalim, would begin. It is you know, bartering for how much you would have to pay for the bride, and then you barter, well, how much the bride has to bring back. Some sort of a nice little exchange ceremony. Obviously, this is quite ritualized and more complex than, you know, would suggest, but this is a part of these tribal trading things. Something similar also happening here in the Baltics, and I don't know about North America and the native peoples, but pretty sure that some sort of bride selling or kidnapping happened there as well. Although not an expert, of course. The average clan size was, as would be expected, because of, well, famine, was very small. Including the women and children, there were usually only a few dozen people in any one group. The Yasayak book for the Mangazinia in 1629 refers to a number of groups consisting from one to three adult males and their families. A 16... 53 account, also from the same district, tells of the clan of, <clears throat> quote, Knyaz Lidere, again, Knyaz used extremely loosely here, considered to be the strongest of the Samoyed clans in the region at the time. They had been taken unawares by the group of Ostiaks while hunting Sable, and the records indicate that 10 members of the group, including Lidere and four children, were killed, and eight, including four children, were taken as slaves. Thus, of the preeminent Samoyed clans consisted of only 18 individuals, one of the truly biggest ones, 
of which just ten were adults. Life of the peoples of the far north was indeed highly dangerous, full with starvation, full of nomadic things, full of reindeer, highly dependent on the elements, and, well, extremely dependent of the health and following the game they pursued. Mostly, then, Samoyed were preoccupied with the business of daily survival. And then, obviously, the Russians came. In the next episode, we're going to look at some quite different tribes, the Ostiaks and Vogels, and then we're going to continue on with the colonization. But uh, I'll end the episode here, because we had covered quite a lot of ground, as you see. Thank you for listening. Please join our Facebook group. Um, follow us on Twitter, Eastern underscore Border. Become a Patreon at patreon.com slash border. And, well, if you don't like that, then just go to the easternborder.lv page, click the donate button, maybe set up a regular payment there. And if you want to buy any of our Soviet soap, of which we have plenty of, or uh, some t-shirts, please, please feel free to email us or write on the page's comment section or something like that. We have a lot of, uh, well, still valid Soviet soap, nicely wrapped and ready to be sold out. And then we have some t-shirts to be sent out as well. So, thank you for listening. Do svidaniya, tovarish. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.